So welcome everyone to Square One, a podcast series run by the Harvard Association for Law and Business. My name is Ramin Shep, and I'm a current member of the advisory board for the Harvard Association for Law and Business, one of the largest student-run organizations at Harvard Law School. Today, we're excited to be joined by David Fialco, co-founder and managing partner at General Catalyst Partners. David, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, David, you've had an interesting academic and professional journey before you ended up in VC. You went to Boston College for law school, yet somehow that path led you to build and sell four companies. Your team has been successful in venture and invested in a number of fantastic companies like Airbnb, Stripe, Warby Parker, and, and others, and really a broad swath of industries and investments at different stages. You know, as a starting point for our conversation, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how companies have changed from you know, the year 2000 to, to today. At the macro level, what are your observations on some of the similarities and differences and things like founder mentality, culture, and, and just the relative complexity between getting started versus scaling? Well, thank you. Good question. For starters, you know, uh, the reason why we decided to, to start a venture firm is as founders and CEOs ourselves, we felt that although there were a lot of very good venture capital firms and investors, it still was not always focused around the needs of founders and having empathy for the process and the journey of building a company. So when we had an opportunity to think through a structure of how to build a venture firm ourselves, we focused around the needs of founders and CEOs and thought that we could do a very good job of helping the next generation top founders build their companies. And that's what we've done over the last you know, 15 or 16 years. So that would give you the reason why we did this. In terms of how the business has changed, it's actually gotten significantly better. And the reasons for that are kind of fourfold. One is that there are just more young people starting businesses today, which means that there's more really bright people trying to solve some of the world's hardest problems, and many of which are down to technology. The second is that with the success of so many companies over the last 15 or 20 years, there is a mentor network and a talent pool network that didn't exist, you know, certainly, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. So with more good people to work in these companies and more good people to help these companies get built, the likelihood of success of our best companies is significantly enhanced. The third is if you looked at the top market cap companies, say in 2000, you know, which was before we started, and you compare them to the top market cap companies today, one thing will be strikingly obvious, that the top uh, market cap companies in the United States and in the world today are virtually all tech companies. And that is transformative in the way that we think about value creation and the importance of these uh, tech leaders. So much of uh, our lives and the quality of our lives in both communications and healthcare and in entertainment and in business building are all powered by technology. And unlike these companies before, which required so much capital to build, with the advent of uh, using different uh, technical tools today, including the cloud, including software tools, etc., 
it's easier than ever for uh, founders to bring their products and services to market. And when you think of value creation, how do you think about you know, venture capital as, as a whole, right? Venture is an interesting business because, you know, though it focuses on investing in companies aiming to, you know, disrupt industries, venture capital, I would argue venture capital as an industry actually hasn't changed all that much over the past 20 years. I mean, you're, you're seeing some shifts going across stages, but, but by and large, it's been the same. And I think that starts to change, or at least we're seeing new models emerge that have the potential to change that going forward. You know, one is, ICOs and token-based funding, though, you know, I think we'd both agree there's a little bit of a bubble in that space going on today. Um, and then the second is just data-driven venture capital. You know, the, the team at Social Capital recently announced their project of, you know, capital as a service, um, which I think is pretty fascinating because it starts to apply a much more rigorous data framework to, to picking companies at scale. So how do, how do you think about, you know, venture getting disrupted um, and how do you think you'll be, it'll change if, if at all going forward? Yeah, some of the things you mentioned in any era or any year per se, there are several new ideas that may become minor changes in the industry. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is how do venture firms back the best talent. And data helps, but at the end of the day, we're backing human beings. We're not backing products. We're not backing markets. We're not backing companies. We're backing people. And there's no shortcut to finding, working with, and mentoring great founders. And that's still an artisan business. It's not scalable. It can't be done by large corporations. It's got to be done by a myopically focused group of people who really care about the journey that we referred to before. And that hasn't really changed. Now, you know, even you know, with the um, advent in the last year of some mega funds coming into play, you know, the soft banks of the world, et cetera, they've been large money has been around forever. It's just bigger money today. But it's still the same thing. The best companies will get built by the best founders who have a focus around their customers and product. And the best VC firms will find those companies and help them build their businesses. So in many ways, yes, certain things have changed, but in many ways, it kind of looks the same thing. I'm curious on that point, how you start to think about value creation and, and venture a little bit more at scale. You know, the, the adage in venture has always been, regardless of the amount of capital available, the same number of generational companies are historically started every few years. And, you know, 90 plus percent of the exit value comes at the hands of, you know, less than 3% of the investment. Now, I think you can actually start to frame a fundamentally different argument and actually take the inverse position today, which is it's not that there's enough capital in the space, right? There actually should be more. It just isn't allocated efficiently or looking in the right places. So I'm curious to, to get your thoughts on, you know, as we go forward, do you see that age-old, you know, adage remaining true, or is there actually a tipping point that comes in terms of increased capital, you know, facilitating more winners and, and increased investment opportunities? I would say this. There's always going to be a disproportionate amount of the large wins that are going to come from a handful of companies because the innovation curve is always going to reward the leaders. What's changed, and this is a nuance, is there is a significant amount of value creation that does come from a new piece of the market, which is that as huge amounts of capital enter into the space, one of the ways in which that capital can be deployed 
is by keeping companies private longer. And as part of that, we're starting to see more and more firms taking the opportunity of allowing uh, liquidity in the form of secondaries with founders that probably is reasonably new. So let me be clear about that. Companies create a ton of value. They want to stay private longer. Large money trying to get in. One of the tools that they can use to create uh, their their entry strategy is by uh, allowing founders to take some money out of companies before they are fully uh, liquidated. That's new, and that's a value creator. It's a value creator for both entrepreneurs and for firms. And so how do you think about that point um, when you relate it back to what's going on in the environments today, right? You mentioned late, you know, late stage institutional funds like the soft banks of the world are starting to get involved. Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, especially as it pertains to you know, what's going on with unicorns and, and just the amount of funding being raised. Um, you know, I personally think that, that that we're in a bubble is, is overblown, um, considering especially some of the things we've already talked about, right? Market dynamics cost to start a business, um, and, and how different they were, frankly, since, you know, 99, 2000. Um, and on the other hand, if, you know, if truly comparing apples to apples, I'd take a basket of unicorns, you know, over something like Microsoft, uh, in a, in a heartbeat. But at the same time, I think there are concerns that I have with venture these days, and it, it, re- it revolves mainly around that founder investor alignment dynamic. You know, venture can be a growth catalyst, but it can also and more often does you know, kill startups by forcing them to prematurely scale and, and just absorb growth at any cost. How do you think about that dynamic and, and how do you work with your companies to align incentives on building an enduring winner in a space versus ensuring a certain return profile you know, over a five to seven year time frame for LPs? So this couple, that's, that's, a, that's a dense question. So let's take it one piece at a time. One piece of that is our best company and probably most firms' best companies uh, take up to 10 to 12 years to build. Uh, and to be in companies for a very long period of time means you go into it knowing that you, there's a long road to an exit. And shortcuts don't work. Raising too much money doesn't work. Having secondaries doesn't work. Although there are certainly times when secondaries make sense. If you have founders who have created a ton of value, and the company has been somewhat de-risked, and the investors and the uh, founders have alignment, uh, it's totally fine for founders to take some money out uh, to give them some financial uh, security. And if that helps the founder go long and stay in the game longer, uh, hats off to that. However, along the way, there's going to be alignment on what the company uh, is being built for and if the goal is to optimize the value by owning a company for a very long period of time, everybody around the table needs to know that that is the goal. The piece that uh, having large funds like SoftBank um, or other large investors, I-, I think it's great. I actually do not think it's negative. Uh, I just think it's going to be managed like any other uh, new concept, which is we've never seen this type of money come into the market or into deals. I think if it's used correctly, it's a enhancement. I mean, the flip side of it is not all companies should be forced to go public too early. Uh, names aside, I'll let you kind of plug in the blanks here. A lot of companies in the last couple of years have gone public too early and uh, 
have been, you know, uh, torn apart by the public markets uh, for, for, for their lack of performance. And, you know, in that case, companies went public too early because everybody was trying to get liquidity at the wrong time. So in many ways, having large amounts of capital available to the right companies is a really good thing. It's just got to be managed well um, by, by, by investors and by teams. The third piece, which it's just worth talking about as a, you know, as a group, uh, as a, as, and when we start to group together you know, investors and founders and alignment and then the LPs and limited partners who provide the capital, you know, is, is that um, the wins now are bigger. Uh, the, the outcomes you know, are some of the biggest outcomes we've ever seen. And I, I'm not, I, I, mean, I am not a cynical person, nor am I skeptical. Uh, I am a, a, a totally uh, you know, optimistic person, which is what, why we're in the venture business. Because we believe that uh, building great companies is going to be uh, you know, one of the great enhancements to our economy and to job creation and you know, quality of life, etc. So there's never been a better time if you put all these pieces and utilize them in the right ways. You know, you wouldn't use, you know, a driver on a golf course on a hundred yard shot. I mean, you've got to use a driver when you've got a long way to go. So even sources of capital need to be used tactically along the way so that you align everybody's incentives. Yeah. How do you see that value creation point? Um... And, and, and the growth dynamic a lot of, of a lot of these companies, I agree, right? You're seeing companies now where the winnings are, are much larger. And, and, you know, you can make the argument uh, that, you know, the, the winners in the spaces today are going to see, you know, vastly dramatically more returns than, you know, than their predecessors, right? 50 million people were on the internet in 1995. There's going to be over 3 billion on, on a smartphone in, in 2020. And on a smartphone, which, by the way, is more powerful than the computer that launched you know, the U.S. to the moon in, in 1969. So it's a completely different world um, that, you know, companies are starting in and, and evolving and, and thriving today. How do you start to see that or think about that in, in relation to, you know, companies and their concentration in the private markets versus the public markets, right? We're seeing less and less companies go public. Um, and a, a part of that is the evolution of the sophisticated late stage investment scene. You know, 20 years ago, there were 9,000 public companies Today, there are only 3,500, and it's decreasing. And so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on a, on a tactical level of, you know, what are you observing with respect to why less companies are going public? And then at a more philosophical level, you know, what are your thoughts on the implications of, of that for society and innovation? You know, you can make the argument that um, it allows companies to thrive, you know, for longer and, and avoid scrutiny of the public markets when they might be, when they might not be ready. You could also make the argument that, um, you know, it's wealth concentration is being kept out of the hands of the public at large. And when you have, you know, sophisticated disruptors at scale, like a Google, Facebook, Amazon, you could start to make the argument that a lot of companies are actually getting picked off, you know, sub $50 million and, and talent is actually consolidating in just a few companies making innovation at scale, you know, harder for other startups and, and society. So I know a lot of pieces there, but Tactically, what are you what are you observing with respect to why less companies are going public? And then at a more macro scale, you know, what are your thoughts on the implications of that for for society and innovation at large? Wow, lot um, well, yeah. uh, Let me let me cut to a couple of key points. One is that uh, companies do not have to be public to be successful. 
were probably more punitive on public companies who don't perform than ever before. Uh, and as a result, not, a part of it is just the flow of information, which is so quick today. And there's been some significant changes to the way stocks are traded, which allow people to get in and out of stuff very quickly. You also have situations where uh, analysts are more open to be punitive to companies because of fear of promoting the wrong types of companies. So macro changes in the way the markets work. The second piece of that is I really don't believe the companies have to be public to be successful. But we sell companies all the time. And you know, part of it is uh, some to strategic, some to uh, uh, private equity firms, uh, with huge outcomes. And for many founders, that's their choice. And the reason why it's their choice is because they would prefer uh, to not have to deal with the street. We have younger CEOs uh, than ever who are creating successful companies. A lot of those CEOs don't want to be public company CEOs, spend a lot of their time managing the street, managing earnings, managing short-term outcomes. So I can't blame a lot of those founders, and it's their choice to not be public. And that's when you have all these other pieces that we talked about. You have more buyers now than ever from companies. Uh, strategic and financial, uh, and you have more money available uh, so that companies don't need the uh, public markets to generate liquidity to continue to invest. They can, uh, on the contrary, uh, they can raise money and make it stay private and then sell them more. So, David, I want to switch gears a little bit and, and round out you know the conversation through um, you know. Uh, a commendation for you. You know, you were recently anointed to the Forbes annual Midas list, tracking the top hundred VCs globally, um, a significant marker of success in the space. But you know, I'm sure, like all VCs, have missed out, you know, on some generational companies. And and I point that out because I'm curious to hear, you know, which of today's winners maybe that you had an opportunity to invest in, but you know, you and the team passed. And and I get to that point more on, you know, what did you learn from the experiences of the missed opportunity? How have you harnessed those learnings as, as a firm to become better investors? And and the core question of what is it about startups that makes it really hard, even for those you know that are at the top of the industry, to predict winners and losers? So we don't comment on deals that we miss. Um, uh, it's just um, that's a complicated question. Uh, but we miss a lot of deals. We miss a lot of deals. Uh, and we try to learn from our mistakes. But since most of what we're doing is early stage tech, and most of our uh, of the companies both that we pass on and that we back are first-time founders, what we normally get wrong is the capacity of the young founder. Sometimes luck plays into it. Sometimes uh, we just miss the passion, exuberance, and focus around the product that a certain founder has that we didn't get when we met them during the convention uh, process. But it's, that's okay. Um, great companies get funded, and although most of what we do is early stage, often if we miss a deal and we develop a great relationship with a founder, um, we can go in and do a later round if it still makes sense. So as we finish out the conversation here, I wanted to go through a little bit of a round of rapid fire. So I'm going to ask a string of questions, and um, it'd be great if you could give me an answer just in one or two sentences. So the, the first question is, which tech company that exists today 
do you think is the most valuable company in five years? Amazon. Which of the five most valuable companies by market cap today, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, or Microsoft, isn't as relevant in 10 years? It's a high bar. I think all of them are real relevant. Um, I think Apple. I think that it's an unbelievable company, but its innovation curve is so filled with pressure based on its next products that if it misses a cycle, which it has in the past, but it's done pretty well, um, I think that it doesn't become less valuable relative to where it's at today, but it will become less uh, valuable to its, uh, relative to its period. Is Silicon Valley still the world's top innovation hub in 10 years? And if not, is that hub still in the U.S.? Um, I think that's a really good question. Uh, I, I think that... The innovation hub today is Silver Valley. I think it's a jump ball whether that moves to China. And then the final question, and you can elaborate a bit more on this one if you'd like. If you were starting your career all over again, you know, what advice would you have given yourself? So regardless of the things that I've done in the past, either being a founder of a company, a filmmaker, uh, or a uh, venture capital firm, I, what I knew when I was younger is much more clear to me now. It's all about people. And it's not just about the best talented people. It's about a group of people who are like-minded, aligned, and bring complementary skill sets to each other. Because I think the relevancy of a group of people is more important now than ever. And we, I, for one, when I was younger, uh, was very focused um, around um, resumes um, or credentials. And I think that matters less and less today. And I think it will clearly matter less and less in the future. Coming from a great former company has no bearing or relevance to success in the future. Nor does, in many cases, education. But what education is going to matter is in places like healthcare or science where somebody who has credentials in science or in you know, medicine is more important than ever. But in a lot of the businesses that we're in, uh, it is all about grit, creativity, over the horizon thinking, uh, and relevancy in the work that that person's doing at that moment. The second thing is the ability to build great teams. And that is an art form and a tremendous skill. I think the more pressure we put on ourselves to do that, the more we realize how important that is. Well, David, this has been great. You know, thanks, thanks so much for taking the time and, and distilling a lot of interesting learnings and insights over over a great career. We we really appreciate it. Call me anytime, Chris. Thank you so much.